Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where we build a suspension bridge using only spaghetti and marshmallows, proving that in engineering and in life's flexibility and creativity might just get you to the other side. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I help B2B SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight and nine figures, which is outstanding. Together, we supercharge revenue growth, create premium valuation, and craft a business you're proud of and a life of freedom and impact that you absolutely love. Leadership in today's digital age is, I think, a lot like playing in a band, or maybe for some of you big companies, it's like an orchestra uh, if we have a large team. But over the past few years, there have been some really cool live recordings where each musician is tuning in from a different corner of the world and some collaborations and some bands that have been in different places. And many of us are doing that with our tech teams today, way more than even just a few years ago. And it's not about just keeping rhythm anymore. It's about harmonizing diverse talents, bridging time zones, and navigating the subtle nuances of cultural differences all while delivering a symphony of success. And without the right leadership strategies, it can turn into a symphony of destruction. And if you're a child of the 70s, 80s, you probably got a song going in your head right now. The rise of remote international teams has really transformed this leadership symphony into a fascinating opus of opportunities and challenges. In one melody, it sings of the richness of diversity In another, it hums the complexities of coordination and communication, symphony and cacophony. Great leaders don't shy away from these challenges. Instead, they transform them into opportunities to create a more harmonious, collaborative, and efficient work environment. Think for a minute about the largest all-remote company in the world. 2,170 employees this year, they've continued to grow and grow and grow. And they don't just have a few remote employees, they're entirely remote. It's a company that many of you know of and and love, and we actually use them ourselves, and you probably do too, and that is GitLab. GitLab's leadership embraced this model really early on, leveraging it as a strength to attract global talent and foster a culture of flexibility and autonomy. But that's pretty awesome. Yes, and... The journey wasn't without its hurdles. They had to solve challenges of time zone clashes, communication gaps, cultural differences way before the rest of the tech world. And their solution was a combination of clear communication protocols, comprehensive documentation, and we can all use that, flexibility, and a deep respect for diversity. It doesn't work otherwise. GitLab's leadership turned the challenge of an international remote team into a strength. They didn't do it by just announcing it was a strength. Hey, we're doing this, and it's a strength now. Like many new initiatives, there's a learning curve, and it was a pretty steep learning curve. It took a while for it to actually become a strength. But they did it by fostering a sense of shared purpose and unity across borders, languages, time zones. And their story is a testament to what innovative leadership can achieve in this realm of remote work that we all live in now. Symphony of success or destruction? Embrace the ethos of GitLab's leadership and purpose and clarity unite. 
uncertainty and me first lose every single time. Succeeding in this new remote world and especially with international teams is not really an obstacle, but an opportunity to innovate, to improve, to get better, to learn, to create a work culture that values diversity and that's as collaborative and iterative as it is productive. Their journey offers invaluable insights into the art of remote leadership in today's interconnected world. If you want to raise your leadership game, check out today's sponsor. It's the book, Small Fish, Big Pond, Building a World-Class Business that Swims Circles Around Competitors. Why do some companies achieve explosive growth while others just kind of sink into the depths? Why do some solutions inspire fierce brand loyalty while others are just interchangeable? And what can we as SaaS leaders learn from fish? Small Fish Big Pond delivers powerful marketing and leadership lessons guaranteed to enhance your marketing message, wrap value around your clients, and guide their buying journey to conclude that your company is the only solution for them. It includes step-by-step frameworks and time-tested growth principles to attract ideal clients, convert them, and transform them into your brand ambassadors. Pick up the print, ebook, or audio today at smallfishbigpond.com, Amazon, or your favorite book source. Our expert guest last week was Rachel Paranello, principal at the Alexander Group. She's a leader in the firm's sales compensation, media sales, and technology practices. Rachel delivered great insight into sales compensation, pricing, and benchmarking methodology. So good. Her expertise was totally on point. If you missed either one of those episodes, go back and give them a listen because they're fantastic. My guest this week is Nicholas Means. Nick loves nothing more than a story of engineering triumph, except maybe a story of engineering disaster. There we go. Symphony of success, symphony of destruction. When he's not stuck in Wikipedia loop reading about plane crashes, he leads the engineering team at SIM, helping create the building blocks engineering teams need to build delightful just-in-time access workflows. Nick has been leading software engineering teams for more than a decade in health tech and dev tool spaces. Fellow Texan, he works remotely from Austin, and like me, is constantly in pursuit of the perfect cup of coffee. Welcome, Nicholas Means. Hey, Nick, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Thanks so much for having me on, Jeff. I'm happy to be here. Well, I love your background. You've gone from being a software engineer to leader, and you say you did that on purpose. Uh, tell me about that journey. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of a joke that I make. Uh, I, I joke that I'm the only engineer that's ever made that decision on purpose, not kind of been shoved the, in, the, in the people direction. You're um, not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for me, it's interesting. I, I knew this was an area that I wanted to explore in my career. I knew that I wanted to try people leadership. Um, and, and what I found when I got in that first role, the first leadership role I had was a team lead role where I was kind of split between writing code and leading a team at the same time. Uh, and I found myself gravitating towards the people side of that job, um, which surprised me. It's not what I expected. Um, but the thing that, that I realized is that code has always really just been a means to solve a problem for me, a means to get leverage, not something that I've been innately fascinated with. And that's not true necessarily for all engineers. There are a lot of people that really like writing code for its own sake and are, sure. are fascinated with the technical side of it. Uh, but for me, it's the problem solving side of it that's so fascinating. And moving into a people role, uh, I just found those problems much more interesting and, and found the, the leverage that being a leader uh, was much more satisfying to me than the, the leverage of writing code on a day in day out basis. And working with the, the people side of the business, is it really developing that the people uh, more so than developing the code? Is that how you see your role? 
It, it is, yeah. I mean, I, I, the things that I find satisfaction in as a leader are largely watching people grow, learning new technologies, um, getting better at their jobs, being able to contribute more, and, and then seeing um, what a group can produce together versus what an individual can produce um, and, and getting exposure to, to thinking on, on more of a group level than an individual level. So making that transition, a lot of a lot of engineers struggle with making that transition from you know coding to leading a team to leading an organization, and you've done that well. What has the been the the keys, or what have been the keys to to making that transition well? I mean it it, it looks it looks like I've made it well from this perspective. I don't know that I would have said it while I was in the middle of it. Um, it it's something that I think everybody that's made this transition struggles with. Um, you I know, definitely you go, relate to that. Yeah, <laughs> you go from writing code on a day to day basis, and the feedback loop is so fast when you're writing code. You write a line of code, a, a test starts passing, or something happens on the screen, and you do that multiple times a day. So you get you get that dopamine hit over and over again over the course of an average day um, by by doing things. But then you step into a line manager role, and that feedback loop slows down uh, because suddenly, instead of writing code, you're you're responsible for delivering whole features. And it doesn't matter if a test is passing. It matters if you've delivered functionality to your users. Um, it matters if people are developing and growing. Uh, then you step up to the organizational leadership level, and that feedback loop slows down even more uh, because then you're looking at organizational goals. You're trying to get the, the next round of funding, or you're trying to get over a certain revenue number or something like that. And, and those feedback loops and the things that you do to get to them are, are much slower and, and much harder to see progress on. And so one of the ideas that's been helpful for me along the way is the idea of meta productivity. Uh, and it's this, this idea that as a leader, you can't really find satisfaction in IC style work. I mean, you still have to do some of it, um, sure. but your satisfaction has to start coming from the work that the people you lead are doing. Because, you know, if, if you're looking at your own direct productivity as a, as a manager, you can kind of get your fingers in in too much of the weeds. You can get a little too involved there and make a mess of things. Too many context switches for your team, um, constantly dropping in and, and intruding and not giving them any time to think or make their own decisions or do their own work. Um, whereas if you can kind of take a step back and and be satisfied, find satisfaction in the work that they are doing in the environment that you're helping them cultivate, um, it's a much more sustainable position to operate in as a leader. But it takes a long time to get there. It takes a long time to be able to to shift the thing that you find your satisfaction in. Without a doubt. So it's like the, the definition of success changes. Yeah. In that. So you're really leading the, the team and it's about their success and, and their growth, not about your personal productivity. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's hard because it's, it's not just, it, it's one thing to know that you need to do that. It's another thing to actually find the emotional satisfaction in doing it. And the, the latter tends to lag quite a bit be, behind the former. Like, you know that that's where you should find your satisfaction. But satisfaction is a tricky thing to find. It is. So how did you learn to do that, to, to really kind of let the team, you know, grow and, and take that control, uh, you know, versus, you know, hold on to it yourself? Uh, you know, I think the answer is that I, the honest answer is that I screwed up a bunch. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, you learn pretty quickly in, in a leadership role that it's easy to make a mess of things. Um, I remember there's one specific incident where an engineer on my team had said something that I, I didn't like. I didn't like his attitude, the way he presented it in a, in a group forum. And honestly, I kind of chewed him out for it afterwards. Um, 
And he pushed back on me and told me why he had said that. And it, it uncovered this entire universe of frustration that I didn't know that he was experiencing because I hadn't stepped back enough to let him express that. I hadn't given him the room to, to even talk mm, to me about wow. that. And it, it, I, I subsequently swallowed my pride and apologized to him. And um, he's still a good friend to this day. But that's I look back on that. That's sort of a key moment in my development as a leader. Um, where I learned that my perspective is not, not necessarily right all the time. It's certainly not the only one that matters. Um, and, and I needed to spend more time as a leader getting the perspective of everybody on the team, uh, building a place where it was safe for them to have that input and to say hard things to me. Because it came out that was one of the, the reasons that he hadn't said that to me is I hadn't made our one-on-one safe enough for him to say the thing that he needed to say. And he didn't say it until I yelled at him and made him have to get in sort of this defensive posture to say it. Um, so, you know, so it's a lot of incidents like that where you, where I've realized over time that I don't have all the answers and my ideas aren't necessarily the best ones. Um, it, it's, it's been interesting to see groups come up with wildly different things than, than what I imagine we would be building or working on um, because I've given everybody the space in the team to, to have an opinion and to, to push us in a certain direction and have input on the things that, that we're building and doing as a group. Um, and, and it took a lot of work to be able to put my ego down enough to do that. That's really hard to do. And and it is true. We're, we're smarter together than any one of us by ourselves. But that's a hard thing to, to really admit. I think deep down, you know, I, I really think I am the smartest person <laughs> in the room. I mean, and, I think, that's I, hard to, to let go of. It is. And, and I think, you know, the thing is, we all think that, Jeff. It's not it's not just you. It's not just me. I think it's everybody. And. I think there's a lot of shame in, in that feeling, right? Like you, you know that you probably shouldn't feel that way, but you still kind of do. And sure. getting past that shame by realizing it's something that everybody deals with kind of makes it easier to move past. Yeah, it's a constant battle. And it's not something I think that, you know, we just beat once, but it's something yep. that, that keeps coming back and, and we keep wrestling with that over time. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Tell me about your time at GitHub. It's a company that everybody knows, you know, very well known in the industry. Probably a lot of companies here that are listening use it. Yeah, GitHub is is a fascinating place. Um, it's interesting from somebody like me that that likes to help engineers build product sense and operate from a product perspective. Um, joining GitHub, everybody everybody on the engineering side of the organization is a native user of the product already. Uh, they've probably joined GitHub because they've used it for years and they want to have a hand in a product that's meant a lot to them in their career. I know that was true for me when I joined. Um, but the thing you can't really see from the outside is that everybody at GitHub uses GitHub. Um, if you if you need if you need an invoice paid, you go to the procurement team's repository and you open up an issue for them, and they they handle that from a queue of issues that are opened up in their repository. If you need to bring a vendor in. You open up issue in, in multiple repositories to get the security review and the finance review and the legal review that you need to bring a new vendor in. So really, kind of everybody in the company is using the product on a regular basis. And, and it, it builds a lot more empathy for the customers, for the people that are using the product. Um, so I, I really found that fascinating. Um, I joined in uh, working on a, a small fragment of security products and ended up the director of engineering for uh, software supply chain. Um, so working on things like Dependabot and uh, GitHub CodeQL, products like that. Um, got to do a couple of acquisitions while I was there, which was a lot of fun as well. That's great. 
And then how was that in moving new people or other companies and kind of integrating them in with the team? Those, those acquisitions are some of the most fun things that I've worked on in my entire career. And, and I think it's because I do have such a culture orientation as a leader. Because um, really, when, when, you're, when you're bringing in a new organization, when you're merging organizations together, um, the thing that you have to do more than anything else to get that to go well is make the new people feel safe and welcome. And if you walk up to them and you immediately tell them, here is our culture, you will assimilate to it, that doesn't make them feel very safe or welcome. Um, so a, a lot of a lot of the work in those those situations is okay. Tell me what's important about your culture. Tell me what means a lot to you as a company, and let's come up with ways that we can preserve that even as you join this larger culture. Let's talk about the things that you want to bring to this larger culture because there's things that we can learn from you. Um, and, and sort of approaching it from that perspective of um, making sure that they get to hang on to the things that are important and, and making sure that they know that you're open to learning from them. You're not just there to tell them how to do their jobs now that they're part of a new organization. Um, sets the foundation for people to be able to collaboratively work together and to put down some of the defenses that are, are, are common uh, when, when you're in an acquisition type scenario. Uh, makes a lot of sense. What makes great culture? I mean, for me, the things I'm always focused on are agency and autonomy. Um, you know, I... I operate in positions that have a lot of power. Um, if you look at them from externally, it's a position in the hierarchy of an organization, VP of engineering, director of engineering, where the organization's putting a lot of trust in you and giving you a lot of decision-making authority. Um, I always look at that power as something for that the organization is asking me to give away in really efficient ways. Um, so what I'm doing is, is, when, when people are part of my team that I'm leading, I'm looking for ways to give them opportunities to make decisions, opportunities to guide us, opportunities to pick what they work on, pick what we work on, make important decisions in the product, and, and to do that in ways that encourage them to grow. You know, it's one thing to, to hand them a, a task that they already know how to do competently. There's not much growth there. It's kind of boring. Uh, it's another thing to hand someone a task that's like, okay, go, go climb the Dawn Wall, even though you've never rock climbed before. Um, so you're looking for something in between, something with like an, an appropriate amount of danger that actually lets people grow. And it lets you as a leader give away more and more of that power as people grow into their ability to make those decisions and to handle them well. I think that's a great phrase, an appropriate level of danger. <laughs> I think, I think the, the actual technical term for it in psychology is proximate zone of development. Um, yeah, so the way you say it's a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> appropriate level of danger. I like that because it really gives them the ability to to take on things that are a little bit scary outside of their comfort zone, but in a in an environment where there's some safety there. Yeah. They're they're not completely working by themselves. They're not without a net. They're not gonna fail massively. Mm -hmm. But it is something that, that really pushes their boundaries. And and if they fail, the consequences aren't dire. I mean, the, the, you know, one of the things about having a growth mindset is you sort of have to look at failure and mistakes as opportunities to learn. And so you want to put people in places where they're, they're inevitably going to make some mistakes. They're not going to be 100% successful, um, but they're small mistakes over the arc of whatever it is that they're working on and they, and they can learn from them and, and you, your team as a group can learn from them. Um, so really, and, and making them feel safe enough to take risks. If, if they know that there's a risk of mistake, then they're taking a risk by even working on the thing you're asking them to work on in the first place. 
Um, so as a leader, part of what you have to do is make sure that that safety is in place as well. And that they know that if they make a mistake, it's, it's not the end of the world. It's just a learning opportunity. So with that risk and growth mindset, going from GitHub to your current project sim, tell me about that and, and that transition. Yeah, so I mean, GitHub is, I mean, it's not, it's not the largest company by, by any stretch of the imagination, but it is big. Um, sure. And it feels more like operating a battleship versus the, the motorboat of a, a startup. Um, you know, it takes a long time to turn a battleship. It takes a, a lot of people to make that decision. Um, whereas in a smaller startup, you know, you can cut awake pretty quickly um, with, with some of the decisions that you make on a day in, day out basis. You're shifting the direction of the organization with kind of every decision that you make. Um, and for me, it, it, it was a bit jarring, that change of pace, because I had kind of gotten used to that, that long decision cycle at GitHub. Um, and then moving into a startup, having to make decisions much more quickly, having to lead the team and making decisions much more quickly and, and dealing with the feedback loop and in the speed that you get at a startup. Is that a big transition in, uh, in, in leading in a bigger organization versus smaller? It is. Um, you know, in, in, a, in a larger organization, we, we like to say ugly things about the word politics, but the, the definition of the term is, is just humans sharing power. And so when you're in a place with more humans, there's more work to do to share the power. And so you're spending more time in meetings, you're spending more time convincing people of, of the thing that you want to do or the thing, the idea that you have that it's the right thing for the organization to do. Um, in a smaller company, there's still some of that. You need everybody to be kind of on the same page, but it doesn't take nearly as long and there's a lot more trust um, because you just can't afford to take as long on decisions as you can in a larger organization. Um, so sure. there's there's less time spent on politics, more time spent on actual decisions and and getting things done. And not that there's anything wrong with working in either mode. It's just different. It seems like your leadership style is very much a coach. Is that a fair assessment? It is. I, I try to operate more that way. Um, I, you know, I can I can get directive when a situation calls for it, but it, it's sort of anytime I have to step into that directive place, it either feels like, okay, we're in too much of a hurry for me to take a coaching orientation to this problem, mm. or I failed at something and I'm reaching for a directive position as sort of a, a move of desperation because I can't figure out any other way to get out of the situation. And is that different in a smaller organization? Do you find yourself in, in more of coach mode or more in, we got to do this quickly now? I actually find myself more in coach mode. And that's the thing that surprises me. Um, the, the thing that I've realized kind of at SIM is that being in that coach mode, once you've done the work to sort of develop the team, make sure they have the empathy for the customer, make sure they understand what you're trying to build, what the, the product is and, and sort of the values of the organization, you can go a whole lot faster that way versus being in a directive posture because people aren't having to run every decision by you. They, they, feel, they feel freedom to go and make some decisions, kind of check in with you every now and again to, to show you their progress, make sure they're on the right path. Um, but you can move a whole lot faster by getting out of that directive mindset. And I think that's a little bit counterintuitive to most folks. It is. It is. That, that's really interesting. But I, I love the perspective. I think that's really helpful. You really go a lot faster by you know, letting people run instead of you trying to, to make them run everything through you. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you learn to, to let go? I think that's one of the hardest lessons to learn as an entrepreneur and as a leader. That's a great question. Um, you know, it, it takes a, a lot of iterations on setting your ego down and getting out of the way. Um, and it's something that you have to do over and over again. Um, you know, it gets back to what we were talking about a minute ago about understanding that 
you're not necessarily the smartest person in the room on every decision. Um, you know, if, if you were, then you, then you wouldn't be hiring a team of other smart people. So the fact that, that you're hiring smart people de facto means you don't know the most about every situation. You, you can't yeah. make every decision for the team. Um, and it's, you know, it's one thing to say it on that intellectual level. It's another thing to actually in, internalize it and be able to operate from a position where you know that that's the case. You know that you're not the smartest person on the room. Um, you know, one of the interesting things for me is I, I joke with the team that I'm very competent at the plumbing level of our application. I can talk about the architecture. I can talk about high level boxes and lines. Um, but anytime I start getting in the weeds, technically, you should know that I probably don't know what I'm talking about. And you should push back on me when I say something silly. Um, and it's, you know, building, building that ability, that safety for people to tell you when you're wrong and encouraging them to do it and reacting well when they do um, is, is a big part of it. I think that's really key is, is reacting well when they do. Because a, a lot of times that, that is encouraged is, you know, tell me when I'm wrong, you know, push back. And then as leaders, somebody pushes back and we go, hey, what are you doing that for? Yeah, it's, it's really hard to go, yeah, you know what, you're right. I have no idea what I'm talking about here. <laughs> yeah. So we, one thing we haven't covered is what does SIM do? Yeah, so I, I have a background. Before I joined GitHub, I have a background in health tech. And there's one thing that every health tech company I've been a part of is, has dealt with, and that's how do you make sure that you're protecting the healthcare data um, that, that regulations like HIPAA require you to protect and doing it in a way that doesn't absolutely bring your engineering team to a complete standstill. It's not a log jam. Um, it's always a hard problem to solve. And, and at, SIM, at SIM, we're trying to productize a solution to, to that, among other things. Um, so the product that we're building is really a tool that lets engineering teams build approval and access workflows. Um, and, and probably the easiest way to explain it is, is telling you how we use it at SIM. So when, sure. somebody, when somebody on our team needs access to our production environment, um, they go into Slack, they make a request using, using SIM, and then anybody else on the engineering team can approve that request um, to give them access to the production environment. It's sort of a, a two keys to launch a rocket kind of approach. Um, and once that's approved, the system automatically escalates their access into AWS. They go and do whatever they need to do. And then the system rolls up that access an hour later. So they're not left carrying keys that they don't need to carry on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, it's really they, smart. There's a, and it's, it's very programmable, very configurable. So you can, you can make it work in a bunch of different scenarios. Yeah, that's a whole lot better than kind of the old way of, you know, having that ask for approval and, and wait for multiple days and then get it. And then you forget who got access to what because somebody forgot to notate something. And, yep. And then at the end yeah. of the day, all your engineers end up carrying a janitor's key ring full of system access and not, <laughs> right. not very secure. Right. So in looking at uh, just the, the differences that you've seen over the years, um, you know, small opportunities, big opportunities, um, what do you think the, the, the biggest challenges are? In, uh, in small companies and in helping them grow and find that product market fit and you know where they fit in the world. I think one of the interesting challenges, especially in the, the technology space, is the world is so fragmented now. There's, there's a bunch of small tools that do a bunch of different things. And, and if you're standing up a company right now, you're probably going to use 20 or 30 different tools to set up your production stack, to share passwords, to, to monitor activity. 
Um, and so there's a lot of noise out there. There's a, a lot of tools competing for sure. the attention of people that are starting companies. And if you're building a B2B SaaS product, getting attention amidst all of that den is a pretty tough thing to do. And it requires sort of a, a laser focus on figuring out who, who are you trying to sell to? What kind of company that are they in? What's their job title? Um, it's really difficult to do the level of marketing targeting that it takes to build a B2B SaaS, a B2B SaaS. That makes a lot of sense. What have been the challenges that you've seen in uh, at Sim, or even you know previous companies, in uh, in growth and hiring people and making that transition into leadership? I mean, one of the challenges, um, you know, it's it's the thing that I just talked about. It is very difficult. We have a, a product that that solves a real need for companies, but finding the right person to buy it is tough because you're looking on one hand for somebody who's oriented towards compliance. And on the other hand, who's oriented towards making sure the engineering team stays productive and doesn't get log jammed. And those are not necessarily the same person. It just depends on the organization. It's true. Yeah. And so figuring out who do, whose attention do you need to get first to get a check written is, is, is pretty tough for a product like this, for sure. Um, you know, and hiring, hiring is always a challenge for an early stage company. Um, you're, you're convincing really smart people that could probably go get a big check at a big company to come and take a risk. And so, you know, so much of it is setting the context of the market, setting the context of this is the thing that we're setting out to do. This is the product that we're building. This is the opportunity that we, that we believe that we have. And also, you're at a position in your career where you want to grow and you, you can get a whole lot more trips to the plate in a startup than you would at a big company. So between the, the goals of the business, the opportunity in the market, the goals for your career, the growth that you want to have, this is a good choice for you to make right now. And it's, it's a matter of, you know, you have to be very creative in, in that, that selling process for every candidate that you bring in to, to make sure you're selling to them in terms that they want to buy. Sure. And do you see culture as a differentiator in the hiring process as well? I do. Um, and, and it's been something that, that, that we've actually tracked at SIM. Um, several of our, the people that have applied for jobs at SIM when we've posted engineering jobs have mentioned the things that we say about culture specifically as things that have attracted them to, to apply to SIM. And we run an interview process that I, I, I try to make as 50-50 as we possibly can. I tell candidates on the first call that I have with them that we want the interview process to be as much about them finding about, out about us as it is us finding out about them. Um, so we try to we try to level that balance as much as we can and give people a bunch of opportunities to ask questions. Um, in fact, we close our engineering interview process out with a Q&A that's just engineers. There's no leadership present. And uh, the candidate's encouraged to ask whatever questions they have about life at SIM. And the team is encouraged to be honest, not to be in sales mode, but to, to give them honest answers to their questions so they, they know what they're signing up for. Because at the end of the day, the thing that you want out of a hiring process is a mutual opt-in. You want, you want the candidate to be really excited about joining the company. You want the company to be really excited about having the candidate join. You don't want anybody to be in a position of being coerced and, and coming in with kind of a chip on their shoulder about, well, I don't really want to be here, but they talked me into it. You want everybody to be excited. Right. Uh, you don't want them to feel duped either, yep. that uh, they were sold something and then they get in and find out you know, that the, the culture statement on the website isn't really the way it, it is on the inside. Yep. And, and I think that's true in a lot of cases. I mean, there's, there's a lot of organizations yeah. that, that talk a big game. Um, it's, it's a lot rarer to find an organization that, that has values and lives out those values. And it's tough to tell that from, from a candidate perspective. It's tough to tell that just by asking questions, which is one of the reasons we do the engineering Q&A. Um, we, we encourage the, the candidates that are talking with us 
to ask hard questions and and suss out if if the things that they've been told along the course of their interview process are true. Yeah, is it a good fit or is it not? And that that's so important that uh, that you really do have that mutual buy-in. Yep. That they're really committed and and this is something that they want to be a part of long-term. Yeah. Otherwise, you just end up they leave yeah. and you start all over again. And I mean, in in hiring engineers with with the style of team that we run at Sim, one of the things that that you have to make sure of is that they want to be a product engineer. Um, Because there there are plenty of engineers out there that would really just prefer to grab cards off a backlog, write the code, and move on to the next card. Whereas the the engineering culture that we have really requires you to develop an understanding of the product, an understanding of our customers. Um, We're expecting all of our engineers to to have a hand in designing and developing the product and setting the direction of of what we build. And that's not something everybody wants to sign up for. Sure, sure. I think that's really important. And and it is a, a big distinction. And just writing code or doing what I'm told, I mean, doing is one thing and thinking is another. Yep. And, and that, that seems to be somewhat of a, a lost art is it, just that, that thought process and really wanting to, to, to get up to that next level and really think it deeply about the, the product and where are we going with this and, and where should we go? Yeah. Yeah. I'm convinced it builds better products. I'm convinced, you know, you, you hire all of these smart engineers and then you just give them a backlog of work and you tell them to burn it down. Well, you're kind of asking them to turn their brain off and, and just do what you right. say. So what's the point in going out and trying to find really smart people in the first place if that's all you're going to do with their, their thinking capabilities? Yeah, and, and I don't want to say anybody can write code, but you know, in, in the engineering world, anybody can, can do that. that doesn't yeah, it's, take, it's a much more fungible you know, skill for sure. Yes, yes. Absolutely. But it's really that thinking, that engineering, that, you know, where are we going? How can I make this better? Instead of just mindlessly, you know, coding something because somebody asked for it. Yeah. Thinking, how can we do this better? Is there a different way that we could do this? Make it more universal, make it configurable. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So that's really big. So what are some things that you wish that you had known when you move from, you know, engineering to, to really leading a team? You know, it's interesting. When I think about that, I'm not sure there's anything that I wish that I had known. Because I think so much of it is, even if I had known it, I wouldn't have been able to make sense of it. There's, there's, just, an awful <laughs> lot of it. there's just an awful lot of it that's experiential learning, and you just kind of have to experience and, and work your way through it. Now, I, I wish that I had some better signposts along the way. Um, you know, if, if I had known the idea of meta productivity and this is the way that you need to be transitioning your thinking and, and finding satisfaction versus having to find that out on my own and, and sort of sort through that, it probably would have made things a little bit easier. But I, overall, I, I think there's ways that we can set courses for people that are moving into leadership. There's things that we can tell them to think about, um, choices that we can encourage them to make. But at the end of the day, you kind of have to make your own leadership style. Um, there's no shortcut to getting into that role and figuring out how that suit fits you, figuring out how you want to operate in that context. You know, like you said earlier, I, I tend to be a very coach oriented, a very servant leadership oriented type of leader. And and that works for me. That's, that's the kind of orientation that I like to have towards my teams, but not everybody in the world needs to lead the way that I do. Um, there's, there's valid situations and valid cases for all kinds of leaders. And so It's sort of, it's on you to kind of get into the role and figure out how you want to do it, what you want to do, what your principles are, what's important to you, and and lead with integrity to those principles that you define for yourself. I think that's really, really good. It's not about just mirroring somebody else's leadership style, but it's really developing your own 
yeah, how do you want to lead? Who do you want to be? What what's congruent with with you? Yep, yeah, absolutely. In alignment with your values. Absolutely. Um, one of well, the one of the things that influenced me the most early on in in my journey of leadership was the book "Turn the Ship Around" by David Marquet. Um, he's a, a U.S. Navy submarine captain, and he took over one of the worst performing boats in the fleet and turned it around largely by this kind of leadership, by, by giving away authority, by moving to a position where instead of telling people what to do, he was asking them to come to him and tell them their, tell him their intentions and sort of give him, give him the opportunity to veto, but not to tell them what to do in, in a bid to sort of build ownership. And sort of that, that success story was one of the things that, that set me on the course for, for teaching my own teams to build that kind of leadership and to own their own decisions and to, to learn how to build product without me having to be there for every decision along the way. So you think we get better results when they have that ownership? I do. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's important. Um, you know, for one of the, one of the reasons is the thing we talked about earlier about speed, right? It lets you go faster because you don't have to be present for every decision. Um, but it's also the thing, the other thing that you don't necessarily have all the right decisions. But you have to put people in a position of ownership where they feel safe taking those risks, safe making those choices before you really get their their full thinking ability brought to bear on the thing that they're trying to build. Well, tell me about your podcast, Managing Up. Yeah, so it's it's me and, and a couple of peer managers in the software world. We're all kind of in in different companies, different spots, different size organizations. Um, we like to joke that it's a peer mentoring session that we record and put on the internet. Um, which means that we talk on a, on a regular basis, but we maybe cut one episode a month. Like we're only able to record one a month because it's tough to find a topic that we all feel comfortable talking about and recording and, and putting out into the world versus the the other kinds of things you talk about in a peer mentorship group. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but we tend to be, you know, it's it's a lot of what you're hearing in my leadership philosophy has been sharpened over the years through the the conversations I've had with Brandon and Travis on the podcast. Um, we all tend to be pretty human-oriented leaders, pretty oriented towards the people that that we're leading, helping them grow, helping them develop, helping them have agency and autonomy. Um, but we also have differences that that come up in every episode, and it's those those differences that make for the most interesting conversations. And I think we all come out with our perspective changed a little bit every time we record an episode, which is a lot of fun. I think that's one of the, the greatest things about uh, working with other people, especially in an environment like that. Just the, the the mastermind aspect of you know you, you really do walk away different yeah and I you know it, it, it's an interesting thing um, one of my one of my favorite leadership uh, voices is Laura Hogan and one of the things that she talks about is the manager's Voltron and the the thing that she's referencing in that is every manager needs a support group every manager needs a group of people that they can get counsel from that can call them on their BS that can push them to grow as leaders. And even in a large organization where you have a large peer group of managers, you still need perspectives and voices that are not in the middle of that culture that can kind of help you see around some of those things and push you on some of those things. And that's really a lot of what uh, Brandon and Travis have been for me. That's great. What role have mentors played in your success? You know, I've been lucky to have some good managers, good leaders along the way that have trusted me and, and have let me get in you know, again, appropriate levels of danger. They've let me get a little bit over my head and, and figure some things out. And it's been pretty important to me to have that level of trust from somebody else 
Because when you have somebody else that trusts you and somebody else that's pushing you forward and saying, no, no, I think you can do this job. It gets you through periods where you maybe don't have that amount of trust in yourself. And so that's probably the most important thing that the the mentors along the way have done for me is, is trusted me in situations where I maybe didn't have the trust in myself long enough for me to get to the point that I was like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe I can do this. That's awesome. I love that. So other than Turn the Ship, any other books that have been really influential on you? You know, it's interesting. A lot of my leadership lessons have come from outside the world of leadership books. Um, I've, I've done several conference presentations where I've told the stories of, of various technical disasters. Like uh, I'm doing one right now in Fukushima. I've done uh, United Flight 232. Um, I, I find a lot of wisdom in, in learning how other leaders handled the crises. Um, so a lot of the books that I would reference, uh, like James Mahaffey's Atomic Accidents, it literally just stories of engineering disasters um, and, and the people that have led through them, the decisions that they've made along the way. Those conference presentations always turn out to be a bit of a meditation on whatever I'm struggling with as a leader at the time. So I don't know if it's that there's truth in the stories or if I'm finding truth that's relevant to me for the point that I'm in in my career in those stories. Um, but they've been pretty influential to me along the way. Yeah, I like that. How important do you think it is to have outside influence like that? So not just looking at things in technology, but really taking lessons from the the broader business community or even things that are not related to business. I think it's critical. Uh, And the reason, especially from a technology perspective, is if you look at the broad lens of humanity, how long humanity has been around, and then you look at how long computers have been around, it's a fraction of a fraction of a percent. So we've not been working together long to build software. Um, we've not been organizing ourselves as humans in, in businesses for all that long uh, across the broad scope of humanity. Um, but so much of how we behave in a business context is, is based in sort of that, that evolutionary background of where we come from as a species. You know, you look back at the hunter and gatherers, sort of the tribal nature of that, that stuff still shows up in business. So having that, that broad understanding of, people and, and how people operate and what motivates people um, beyond the context that they're operating in, I think is, is pretty critical. Love that. Where can people learn more about you and about SIM online? Um, the best place to learn about me is uh, my website and means.dev. And about SIM um, is our website, simops.com, S-Y-M-O-P-S.com. Awesome. And we'll make sure and link both of those in the show notes. And Nick, really enjoyed our conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, Jeff. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Thanks again, Nick, for coming on the show and sharing your crazy journey, experiences, and insights. All links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. If you're enjoying the show, I would appreciate it if you would subscribe and follow us. And be sure to check out our new YouTube channel with full podcast episodes, leadership training, shorts, maybe some outtakes, and quite a bit more. It helps our distribution and most of all, lets our production team know that you're out there and you're really appreciating what they're doing. Everyone who subscribes this week will get a SaaS Leaders Magic 8 Ball. So when you ask questions like, will my project succeed? It gives you helpful information like, error, 404 strategy not found. 
Join us next Tuesday as we have Kaz Ada, the founder and CEO of Treasure Data, a leading consumer data platform. Kaz came to this country not even knowing how to speak English. He overcame, majored in computer science, and built the file system for the world's largest supercomputer at that point. It's essentially 500,000 computers combined into one. It's crazy. Amazing journey of uncertainty, tenacity, and triumph that will make you cheer. Cause embodies the spirit of entrepreneurial freedom and is amazingly humble as well. Next Thursday, one week from today on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series is Carlos Antiquera, CEO and co-founder of Novel Capital. It's a fintech completely changing the way startup founders grow and fund their businesses. He's a former founder himself, an angel investor, great insights into funding your business creatively and keeping your equity, something that we all want to do. So I will see you next time. And until then, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Let's go!